Welcome. My name is Matt Rojanski. I'm the director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. I want to thank you all for joining us for our seventh installment of the Global Perspectives on Russia series. Um, we are co-sponsoring this uh, program with the Wilson Center's Asia program uh, and have a wonderful lineup for you in a relatively short time. We'll be joined by uh, my friend and uh, India's leading Russia hand, Nandan Unikrishnan, who's a distinguished fellow and the head of Eurasian Studies at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi, as well as my colleague representing the Asia program where he's deputy director and senior associate for South Asia, Michael Kugelman. And we will, of course, be discussing Indian-Russian relations. Uh, before we get started, I want to remind you, you can stay up to date with everything that we have on tap, events, publications, and more, uh, as well as our podcasts, Kenanex and the Russia File, uh, our blogs, the Russia File and Focus Ukraine, all through the Kennan Institute's website, uh, wilsoncenter.org slash Kennan. If you want to ask a question at any point today, you can email Kennan, K-E-N-N-A-N, at wilsoncenter.org. You can tweet at Kennan Institute or post on Facebook. Uh, please include your name and affiliation when you ask a question. It'll make it more likely uh, that it'll get passed along. Um, I am going to introduce Michael in just a moment. Uh, Michael will uh, offer a welcome on behalf of the Asia program. Uh, and then Nandan will speak, uh, and we'll go right to discussion uh, led by Michael and myself. Um, I just want to note before that that you know this uh, this friendship and uh, wonderful working relationship that we have with ORF is part of a larger and really quite unique undertaking. Uh, I think it's been close to three years now. Of course, COVID in the middle of it, um, complicating things. We've uh, been conducting the the only one of its kind trilateral. Uh, second track dialogue among Russia, the United States, and India. Um, I don't think I have to underscore why that conversation is so important uh, and so timely. Uh, I'm sure that Nandan and Michael can speak to that as well. Uh, but I will simply say that the insights that we on the American side uh, have gained from being party to this conversation uh, have been just exceptionally valuable for me and I know for many of my colleagues. Um, and we have finally, <laughs> one might question the the efficiency of think tankers like us, uh, if after three years we've only published one paper, but we have in fact published three papers, uh, or at least three perspectives in a, in a single sort of large report uh, on Afghanistan, uh, which we assessed, and, and I think Nandan and Michael can say more about this, uh, to be an area of, of clear common uh, importance, uh, let me put it that way, for, for all three of the Russia, the United States, and India. Um, so you can take a look at that report on the Kennan Institute's website as well. All right, I'm going to stop vamping now and introduce uh, my colleague, Michael Kugelman, uh, who, as I said, is the Deputy Director and Senior Associate for South Asia in the Wilson Center's Asia program. Uh, his main specialties are Pakistan, India, Afghanistan, and U.S. relations with them. He's been editor or co-editor of 11 books and writes a monthly column for Foreign Policy's South Asia channel, as well as commentaries for War on the Rocks and uh, the Wall Street Journal's Think Tank blog. Uh, he's published op-eds and commentaries in the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, Politico, CNN, and others, um, and has produced a number of longer publications on South Asia, including uh, the edited volumes, Pakistan's Interminable Energy Crisis, Is There a Way Out?, Pakistan's Runaway Urbanization, What Can Be Done?, and India's Contemporary Security Challenges. His MA is in Law and Diplomacy from the Fletcher School at Tufts University, uh, his bachelor's from American, School, uh, American University's uh, School of International Service, and you can follow him on Twitter, of course, at Michael Kugelman. Without further ado, Michael, the floor is yours. 
Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate the uh, the introduction. Hello, everyone, wherever you may be. Uh, and I'd like to acknowledge any audience members in India, as well as our speaker today. Uh, the COVID situation there is simply heartbreaking, and our thoughts are with you at this very difficult uh, time. So the topic of our discussion today is the India-Russia relationship. Seen, here, seen from here in Washington, uh, this appears to be a relationship undergoing a shift. Historically, going back to the, the Cold War, it had been a warm and enduring relationship. It gained a reputation as a stable, predictable partnership, driven in particular by a strong defense relationship. But in recent years, it has experienced a number of challenges. Each country has deepened partnership with the other's rival. India has ramped up relations with the US. Russia has ramped up relations with China. And more recently, driven by seemingly converging interests in Afghanistan, uh, Russia has sought to ramp up relations with Pakistan. And additionally, the revitalization of the Quad has been greeted with uh, some, what appears to be consternation uh, by Moscow, which has seemingly aligned itself with Beijing in opposing it. So the India-Russia relationship has run into uh, some bumps, and yet it's still a very strong and sound relationship with continued security cooperation in particular. And this makes it a bit of a nuisance for Washington uh, and for New Delhi as well. And so the S-400 deal, the missile defense system that India has purchased from Russia, stands out in this regard. And it's perhaps a bit of an albatross around the neck of a, of a US-India relationship that otherwise is very sound. Um, the US and India over the years have been used to seeing each other pursue ties with the other's uh, rivals. Delhi has sought commercial relations with Iran, for example. Washington has pursued a security relationship with Pakistan. But these, these relationships are not as strong and deep as India's relations with Russia. And given the, the trend lines of, of US-Russia relations, Russia appears poised to become a, a bitter rival of the US. Uh, they may even be on a, a collision course. So I think the takeaway here is that the, the, the India-Russia relationship has evolved, some would say perhaps devolved in recent years. And while this might appear to be a boost for US interests and US-India relations, the India-Russia relationship still remains sufficiently sound and strong um, that it, it could perhaps pose some problems for US interests. So I say this all merely to set the stage for our guest speaker today, uh, who will dissect the state of the India-Russia relationship with much more acuity than, than I could ever offer. Um, it is, of course, Nandan, um, who is, as Matt mentioned before, uh, Nandan Unikrishnan is a distinguished fellow. He's the head of Eurasian Studies at the Observer Research Foundation think tank in New Delhi. Prior to joining ORF in 2004, he began his career as a journalist, starting with India's news agency, the Press Trust of India, or PTI. Uh, back in the mid-1980s, he, he did a two-year stint on deputation from PTI at the Institute for Defense Studies and Analyses. Following his return to PTI and a four-year stint as PTI's Moscow bureau chief, he joined India's first news channel, Television International, in 1995. He is indeed, um, to echo what Matt said, he is indeed one of India's leading experts on India-Russia relations and more broadly on the former Soviet space. His articles are widely published in and outside India. He's edited and co-authored several books and monographs. Uh, and I have had the pleasure to, to meet Nandan in Russia uh, as well as in India, and I believe uh, in Washington as well. So it's great to be 
linked up with him again, this time virtually, to hear his thoughts on India-Russia relations. So he'll offer some, some opening comments, and then we'll have a, uh, a brief conversation before we do go to a um, Q&A. So with that, I turn things over to you, Nandan. Sorry, I was muted. Uh, thank you, thank you so much for this invitation to speak. And uh, I'm particularly grateful to Mr. Rojansky for making this happen and to Mr. Kugelman for agreeing to participate in this interaction. Matthew has a remarkable understanding, a remarkably sane understanding, I must say of Russia, while Michael definitely knows more about South Asia than I do. So this makes my task relatively easier because whatever gaps I leave, they can always, they can always fill it. Uh, what I understand is I have about 15, 20 minutes to speak. So uh, let me plunge straight into it. Uh, I'm not going to go into ancient history. I mean, our uh, links with that region uh, precede, you know, uh, literally go back to the Silk Route. But uh, I will look at our relationship really from uh, independence, from India's independence. Uh, our relationships were formally established uh, bef before independence. One second, let me, okay. Is this better? Can you hear me? Yes, Hello. loud and clear. Okay, great. Uh, it was beginning to bug me a bit. Uh, our relationship began in 1947. In fact, remarkably, we established diplomatic relationship relations before uh, India was formally independent. And even more interestingly, the first contact between the Indians and the Russians about establishing diplomatic relations took place in Beijing, then of course Peking. Uh, but that is a small historical vignette. Uh, relations initially were quite tepid uh, between India and uh, Russia. Uh, one is of course because uh, Stalin did not think much about the Indian elites. He used to think they were, think of them as being the running dogs of imperialism. And he did not think equally, he did not think much about Indian communists. Although they were the largest single opposition to the then Congress party led by Mr. Nehru. Uh, the Indian elites were equally unenthusiastic about Stalin's uh, Russia, although some of them uh, looked favorably upon socialism per se. So it is not surprising that the first impetus to the relationship came after Stalin's death, when Khrushchev visited this country uh, in 1955, if I'm not mistaken. And that laid the foundation for the beginnings of an economic relationship. Uh, Khrushchev was, had seen the uh, coal deposits that India had and offered to help us mine them, set up metallurgical plants, and India gladly accepted uh, whatever help was coming. Uh, subsequently, I mean, today it is much forgotten. Subsequently, the economic relationship was strong enough for Russia to be actually at the roots of many industries in uh, many industrial sectors in the country, be it uh, metallurgy, as I mentioned, oil and gas, science and technology uh, research. The Russians really contributed quite a lot. Incidentally, I'm not going to be using the word Soviets, although till 1991, they were the Soviets. So uh, now 
it is only after uh, the rift between China and Russia starts that a political relationship begins to uh, develop between India and Russia. I'm talking of the period of 56 to 61, when de-Stalinization takes place, 56 in the 20th Congress, when the Chinese communists are aghast at what uh, Khrushchev is doing. And then subsequently uh, in 61, they decide that the Soviet version of communism is a revisionist version and uh, they completely uh, disengage with it. Uh, the Russians start moving closer to the Indians, although the Indians even at that stage are not really very enthusiastic about a strong relationship. But as luck would have it, India also has a war with uh, China in 62. And uh, that leads to a rethink on its relationships and India begins a relationship, strong relationship with the Soviet Union, which starts with effectively the first seed of that is the uh, deal we signed for the MiG-21 aircraft in 1962, just shortly before the China conflict. That deal actually puts down the foundations for one of the sturdiest pillars in the Indo-Russian relationship, which actually has withstood many a change. It has withstood the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91. It has withstood the changes in India since 91 and is still uh, probably the main pillar around which the relationship revolves. Uh, the rapprochement between the Chinese and the US spurred India and Russia to sign a treaty in 1971. It's past history. Everyone knows that the 71 treaty became useful for India when the creation of Bangladesh almost led to the US intervening on behalf of Pakistan. But presumably uh, wiser heads prevailed and uh, Bangladesh was allowed to be established. Even then, on both sides in India and the US, uh, there were many who still hoped that India and Western relations would improve. However, when the tests took place in one test, what we called in India the nuclear test implosion or a peaceful nuclear implosion, uh, which was basically an atom bomb test in 1974, Whatever vestige of hope was left about a good relationship with the West collapsed because sanctions under NPT and various other categories followed. But Russia did not join this. And from then on, the one pillar of military strategic cooperation blossomed into many pillars, which essentially are five. That is economic, political, science and technology, military and cultural. Uh, these five pillars propelled the Indo-Russian relationship till 1991. Uh, this does not mean there weren't any differences. There were differences. Uh, for example, there were serious differences between India and Russia on NPT. There were serious differences between India and uh, Russia on Afghanistan. But of course, there were also highs like the Russian vetoes on Kashmir or Goa, for that matter, in uh, the UN Security Council as well as the decision late uh, in the 80s to lease nuclear submarines to India. In 1991, all these pillars collapse. Uh, both countries undergo dramatic change. Uh, 
uh, both countries start looking westwards for their developmental needs. Uh, India, I must say, successfully. Russia, maybe disastrously. Uh, but out of the mess, what has happened is that while most of these pillars were lost, uh, the economic pillar was, uh, I mean, just to give you an example, before the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet Union was India's biggest trading partner at $5 billion, right? I mean, this is 1989-90 we are talking about. Today, our trade stands at something a little over $11 billion. That is it between India and Russia. So you can see the kind of hit that economic relations took uh, there. However, the defense relationship, uh, the two sides managed to salvage some bit of it. And in the 2000s, of course, uh, it has developed very, very well. However, out of all this, India has learned one lesson, and that is that it cannot rely on a single partner to supply its needs, whether defense or any other uh, area. And so therefore, these searches for uh, alternate sources has had begun then itself. Now, uh, let me come to, I'll, I'll, I'll skip the in-between, as it were, because they're they all logical developments that take place, strengthening the relationship as Russia and India both develop and uh, become stronger individually, and the engagement between them gets more robust. But at the same time, India's relationship with Russia increasingly, particularly today, is increasingly governed by the dynamic of the relationship India has with the United States or China, as well as the relationship Russia has with these two major players. And if we have to look at the relationship today between India and Russia, uh, I would say that it is going through distressing times. I mean, no, distressing may not be the right word, but it is going through very troubled times. It is a reflection of the churn that is taking place in the world. I don't think there is any power in the world today uh, that knows exactly how the scenario is going to evolve, let's say, five years from now. So everyone, most countries, are hedging. Uh, the two players who are not probably hedging and who have a clearer vision are probably the United States and China. but. Uh, from an Indian perspective, uh, we have no option but given our hostile relationship with the People's Republic of China, we have very little option but to develop uh, closer ties with the United States. But that is not the only reason why uh, there is uh, the, the interest in developing closer ties uh, with the United States. India has humongous economic challenges in terms of lifting people out of poverty, in terms of undertaking certain economic reforms, social and political too. And India feels that United States can contribute massively in this endeavor, particularly now when uh, India, if you can see, is being forced to change its uh, development plans to suit uh, the fight against uh, climate change, you know, because India is probably going to be the first country that is uh, going to be asked to go through 
uh, an industrial revolution without using fossil fuels uh, or not using fossil fuels the way it could, uh, which is going to be a challenge in itself. Uh, on the other hand, the relationship between the United States and Russia has uh, been, well, again, it's dipping. I mean, there was a point last year when I thought it could not go any lower, but lo and behold, this year I discover it has gone even further down. So as far as I can see, the relationship between India and Russia is for a long time in the future going to be determined by the relationship that the Russians have with the United States. And this is also going to result in Russia moving closer to China, not because I believe that Russians want to have some kind of uh, allied relationship with the Chinese, but Russia also faces several challenges, which uh, some of the answers may be lying with the Chinese. So today we have a situation where <coughs> on the security front, India is uh, actively pursuing the uh, new concept of Indo-Pacific, uh, of uh, energizing the Quad. Uh, it is in that sense, totally uh, in the, uh, has this very similar vision to what is happening in the Indo-Pacific as uh, the United States, as Australia and Japan. However, one significant difference is that India has not yet reached that stage where it wants to formally be part of any containment strategy of China. So it's a peculiar situation India finds itself in. And, uh, and that is probably because it is not yet certain how US-China relations will evolve. On its part, the Russians uh, recognize how uh, their relationship with the US is likely to evolve in the near future but they equally don't know how the relationship between the United States and China will evolve. And therefore, from that perspective, they do find uh, India an important partner, someone they would like to continue to have a strong relationship with. Uh, ultimately, the biggest fear, I suspect, of both India and uh, Russia, uh, the biggest nightmare would be the emergence of a G2. Uh, you know, if there is going to be a bipolar world, India and Russia would have no options but to take uh, sides. And that is not something that these two powers want because today they view themselves as independent powers. They talk about a multipolar world. Whether that is a reality or a chimera is a different matter. But the point is that they view themselves as independent powers that have a right to have their voices heard in whatever new set of rules are going to be adopted by the world. The Russians in this context of the relationship then with India, the relationship faces several challenges because the Russians definitely do not take kindly to the concept of uh, the Indo-Pacific or the Quad. Their worry stems from the fact that this could be extended uh, subsequently to them. Uh, after all, they are part of, whether they like it or not, they are part of the Western Pacific. And if uh, the recent Russian moves are to be sort of analyzed, 
they're opening uh, bases in uh, Africa and uh, uh, their increased activity in the Indian Ocean uh, seem to indicate that they do not want to be mere bystanders in whatever evolves in the Indian Ocean. But the worry that uh, many in uh, Asia have is the Russians may end up uh, playing second fiddle to China. So far, there is nothing to indicate that that is the case. Because if you look at Russia's relationship with Vietnam, with ASEAN, they are definitely not taking sides on behalf of uh, China. And that is also true of the relationship with India. In the latest uh, conflict with China, you would have noticed that the platform on which the Chinese and Indian defense ministers first met, it was in Moscow and the platform was the SCO meeting. And that is where uh, the beginning of sort of the talks to try and de-escalate the situation in the Himalayas begins. This does not mean that uh, the Russians want to uh, play uh, some kind of mediator. Uh, they understand that trying to mediate between India and China is a mug's game and they are not one, they're realist enough not to want to get involved in that. But the fact is that India still feels that there is some element of use in its relationship with China that we can use uh, the Russians for. Now, I know this is rather muddled, but where do I see this relationship heading? I personally think, and this is my uh, purely personal uh, analysis, or rather not analysis, but feeling, is that we are at a stage where the Indian elites have not determined for themselves where they want to be. And that is because the Indian elites are not determined on the domestic structure they want. The domestic structure in India, we are undergoing significant changes, political, economic, social. And I think no one is clear as to what the end of the road is. Uh, yes, there are moves towards majoritarianism. All that is true. But are we really going to turn into a majoritarian state? Or are we going to have merely some majoritarian tendencies that is at the political level? What will be the kind of economic uh, system that we will have in place? Will we continue with the crony capitalism we have today? Or will we be able to uh, break out of it? These are issues that I think the Indian elite are grappling with. And because they have not determined uh, where they would like to be, I mean, they, where they will be in the next five years, I think the Indian elites right now want to hedge and keep the relationship with Russia going. That at this stage suits Russia, although Russian flirtation with Pakistan, Michael's best area, uh, will uh, probably not uh, sit well with the Indian elites or the Indian commentariat. The point is the Russians are careful enough to ensure that they don't do anything with Pakistan that crosses the, any kind of a red line that India may have. And they try and project everything that they're doing in the light of their concerns about what is happening in Afghanistan. So where will the relationship be, let's say, five years from now? I think, uh, I don't know about five years, that's astrology. 
But for the next couple of years, I don't think there is going to be an attempt at jettisoning that relationship from the Indian side. I also believe that diversification will continue of the arms uh, market, that India will continue to seek sources elsewhere. So you will see if you look at the last five years that the quantity of arms India is buying is steadily reducing. Earlier, it used to be almost one and a half billion dollars a year. Now it is below a billion. And this will keep coming down uh, despite the S-400. But at the same time, India is going to buy some of the necessities it has from the Russians because it's not available anywhere else. And I'll finish with that. I mean, who else in the world is going to offer India a nuclear submarine? Who else in the world is going to help India build a nuclear submarine? So unless someone from the Quad is willing to step up and fulfill that part of it, the Russians are not going anywhere from India's horizon. Thank you, Michael. Well, thanks a lot, uh, Nanda. That was a really great overview, combining uh, some recent history with some uh, uh, contemporary affairs. And it's uh, prompted several questions. Um, and before I pose a few questions to you, just wanted to remind everyone in the audience that if you want to pose a question uh, to Nanda during the Q&A, which we'll have a bit later in the hour, uh, send your question by email to kenan at wilsoncenter.org or tweet it to uh, at Kenan Institute. Um, so, you know, one, uh, one initial question that came to mind hearing you, hearing you out is that um, and I know that in, uh, many Indians have long looked at this relationship with Russia as something that is stable, dependable, predictable. Russia has been viewed as a, a relatively low maintenance partner um, and could be trusted. And then even if there hasn't been as much substantive cooperation as previously, it's still a safe space, this relationship with Russia. Um, do you still think that is the case? Um, I know that, not asking you to generalize, but uh, broadly speaking in New Delhi, among the strategic elites, the political elite, do you think that the relationship is still thought of um, in that way, that it's still you know, consistent? And I believe your foreign minister, your external affairs minister said not long ago that the relationship with Russia is the only bilateral relationship that India has where there's never been any type of major disturbance or major crisis. Um, so would be curious to hear your take on how the relationship with Russia is viewed in that context as stable, dependable, safe, that type of thing. I don't think that at this stage, India is worried that the Russians are going to do anything dramatic that are going to affect India's strategic interests. I think we will continue receiving their support on Kashmir, for example. I think we will continue to uh, receive their support on a variety of other issues. There will be, however, uh, distinct changes, uh, which will bring pressure on the relationship. That is, one is India's evolving relationship with the United States, India's evolving relationship with the Quad, and that these two will be determined by India's evolving relationship with uh, China, you know, and this is bound to affect uh, the Indo-Russian relationship, but not in the way that it is going to be uh, jettisoned anytime soon. The reflection of that, as Mr. Jashankar may have put it, that it's the relationship that 
has not faced any sort of significant turbulence. I'm using my own words. Uh, yeah, maybe, but uh, you know, this is the first time uh, Mr. Jayashankar has received a foreign minister and not let him meet the prime minister. So, uh, and I don't think, I mean, you can call it scheduling, you can call it what you want, but this was clearly, I, in my opinion, a determination of the Indian Foreign Office. It is not an accident, but I know it will be projected as one of those problems. But then on the other hand, neither has a Soviet foreign minister ever visited Islamabad immediately after Delhi. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you for that. And indeed, I mean, the, the visit that you're referring to uh, when uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov was in New Delhi and was told that you know, Prime Minister Modi was campaigning, didn't have time for a meeting. You know, John Kerry was in uh, New Delhi at the same time, um, and he got a meeting, as I, as I recall. So, indeed. Um, another sort of follow-on question um, is, gets back to something you were talking about uh, with the Indo-Pacific, and you had indicated that uh, Russia is uncomfortable with the Indo-Pacific Indo idea and construct because of the fear that it could soon start targeting Russia. Um, you know, I have read some commentaries um, produced by Indian analysts that New Delhi should try to make more of an effort to get Russia on board with the Indo-Pacific construct and try to convince Moscow that it's actually not as, as bad as Russia may think. Is that a realistic recommendation or is it, is it pretty much not even worth going there? especially as Russia's relationship with China continues to, uh, uh, to deepen. You know, uh, Michael, mercifully, Indian policymakers are a little bit more realistic than the Indian commentariat. So uh, in that sense, I am uh, rather relieved. And I think they have understood that uh, words have their place in the world of diplomacy but actions are also equally important. And when you look at the Indo-Pacific, I would say that uh, the words, you know, the fire and brimstone that comes out of Lavrov are not matched by the actions on the ground. And that is in the water in this particular case. So if you match that with their actions, with the kind of debates that are going on in Russia, and this is, Matthew's domain, so he can say, let's say three years ago, four years ago, the Indo-Pacific, even the mention of Indo-Pacific in a conference would uh, be almost suicidal for a Russian academic. But today they have full-fledged uh, uh, seminars on it. So it is a concept that is going to come and be accepted. After all, you see the Russian objection is what? that Indo-Pacific is this US construct to contain China. But hello, wasn't Asia-Pacific the same construct? Wasn't Asia-Pacific similarly a US construct? You bought into it, they will buy into this. Eventually, they'll keep it calling it Asia-Pacific, but do something else. So there will be a difference between words and actions. Thanks. Uh, one other thing I want to get your take on, because I'm sure that someone in the audience will pose this question if I don't. You hinted on this before. You know, it's something that's uh, very much in the minds of, of people in Washington, you know, the S-400 situation. Um, do, you, do you think that India should indeed continue with this, with this deal if it starts to seriously believe the, the Biden administration could impose sanctions? And of course, we don't know what's, what's going to happen. I think the conventional wisdom here 
is that it's unlikely, or it's, it's likely that the administration would provide a waiver uh, to avoid sanctions, but we don't know. Um, and there is a window here for New Delhi to change its mind because the equipment hasn't yet been delivered, as I understand it. Or do you think that it's, it's India will conclude that it simply has to go through with the deal, even at risk of, uh, of uh, sanctions and the implications that could have for its relationship with the US? Well, you know, I think India is in a very difficult place. Uh, but there are two, three things that India has to take into consideration. India's value to the United States in terms of the Indo-Pacific and the Quad is only if India is militarily strong, if India has the military capacity. Otherwise, India is useless. I mean, then you have a different relationship with India. And India does not have the financial wherewithal today to be able to re-equip itself completely with US arms. It just does not have the wherewithal, even though it has significantly diverted in the last five years, uh, significant amounts of money to purchase uh, US weapons platforms. I mean, aircraft and everything. So it is going to take a certain amount of time. The pandemic hasn't helped. It has slowed down the economy. So the amount of money available to the government is also going to be reduced. And in that context, I think, uh, it, 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 I, I just don't understand how anyone sitting in Washington can believe that India becoming militarily stronger in the kind of relationship it has with uh, China is detrimental to the United States. But uh, I have known situations where the United States has shot itself in the foot. So let's see if that happens. Absolutely, I, uh, I would agree with you on that. Uh, maybe just one or one or two more questions before we go to the uh, to the Q and A with the audience. Um, I wanted to sort of bring things back to uh, the immediate issue of the day in India, that being the, the pandemic. So Russia's Sputnik uh, vaccine is is coming to India. It was recently cleared for emergency use there. It'll likely be available in the next few weeks. Do you think that Russian um, pandemic assistance? is a space that could bring a boost to the India-Russia relationship. And especially at a moment when, as we all know, the US has uh, at least not yet been willing to export large numbers of vaccines or uh, also the raw materials needed to produce vaccines. Um, so you wanna talk a bit about um, how uh, Russia-India relations and cooperation could be impacted by uh, the pandemic and Russia's apparent willingness to provide assistance to India in that regard. You know, India, much like the rest of the world, was initially very skeptical about uh, the Russian uh, vaccine. So if you notice, uh, the Russians had come and signed deals with Indian companies last year. But the clearance for the vaccine to be used as emergency case has been given only this month. So uh, clearly, the Indian establishment was not convinced until the figures really came in front of them and they saw that there is a capacity. The second is the crisis itself. You know, India has suddenly realized that the number of vaccines it has and has access to and the number of people that needs to be vaccinated, there is a gap and that gap is going to take some time to uh, be removed. And uh, therefore the Russian vaccinations or any vaccines from abroad can only help ease the situation. 
So in that sense, I think it's a rational decision to do so. Will it help the Russians? Undoubtedly, I mean, it'll clear, it'll improve the perception. The Russians, uh, you know, don't have the best image in the country today. So it'll, it will uh, help uh, improve their image. Uh, but uh, how much, I don't know. You know, I'm not going to speculate on that. Uh, also, as far as I understand, uh, while there are some doses that will come into India, uh, the Russians also are really looking at India as a, a market that from where they will export. Well, thank you. Um, final question before I uh, turn things back to, to Matt for the uh, the, the audience Q&A um, that I can't help but ask Afghanistan. I mean, as was discussed earlier, uh, we, uh, our Wilson Center ORF and our Russian uh, partner IMEMO came out with a, uh, a series of reports looking at prospects for cooperation in Afghanistan. Uh, obviously, it's a very uh, fluid, unpredictable state of affairs in Afghanistan. Um, I had argued in my uh, paper that there could potentially be some prospects for um, the three countries to cooperate uh, in areas of dialogues around issues like counterterrorism and that type of thing. But I thought I would just ask you uh, briefly, what do you, do you think there's any scope for cooperation between Russia and India in Afghanistan at this very uh, delicate moment in Afghanistan's history? Michael, I think... Uh... <clears throat> you know much more. <clears throat> Sorry, <clears throat> you know much more about uh, the situation in Afghanistan than I do. But uh, as a layman, I would imagine that Afghanistan, the problem, is not going to stabilize with U.S. withdrawal. In fact, if anything, it's going to get worse, and therefore it will require close attention from the international community. And it will definitely require attention from the US, from Russia, China, India, Iran, Pakistan. I mean, everyone who is uh, directly affected by the uh, instability in Afghanistan. And whether we like it or not, I think all these countries will have to find a common, uh, least common denominator and work according to that, because otherwise, Afghanistan is just going to explode in our faces. Thanks, that's a nice uplifting way to, uh, to leave that conversation right there. But unfortunately, I, I do agree with you and I think you, um, you, what you say is uh, quite, quite accurate. I'm gonna turn things back over to, uh, to Matt Rajansky now who will uh, moderate our audience uh, Q&A. So thank you, Matt, all yours. All right, thanks, thanks a lot, Michael. It's uh, really fun to be a fly on the wall for the discussion between the two of you. and. Um, you know, you're, you're kind to defer to my knowledge about Russia. I don't know that uh, anybody has the kinds of insights and crystal balls that, uh, that we'd need to really answer the questions that have been raised. I have my own questions, but there are so many audience questions. I'm going to go to them right away, and we're going to try to get as many in as we can. So uh, uh, both of you, I just would ask, you know, keep your answers fairly compact. I want to begin with one uh, from uh, Kishore Kulkarni, uh, no institutional affiliation. Uh, who asks, as democratic countries, the USA and India seem like natural allies. Do you foresee greater relations between the US and India based on shared democratic values? And let me add my own, this is, this is my editorial question, um, about the issue of Navalny and the treatment of the opposition in Russia, which is obviously a huge bone of contention with the United States. And then, and then conversely, uh, you know, 
the, the mutual fears about interference in domestic politics between Moscow and Washington, and to some extent also between Europe and Russia. Uh, Nandan, you talked about India's perspective on Russia in frankly very realist terms, which feel a bit foreign uh, to those of us who are in the conversation about Russia and Washington. So comment on, on, on that cluster of issues, if you would please, democracy, uh, you know, kind of interference uh, uh, and, and human rights issues, if you would. Thank you. I think that irrespective of the, whether the India and US are democracies or not, our relationship will get closer. And uh, the fact that we are democracies will only buttress that. The uh, historical curve, as it were, is such that uh, the closeness between the United States and India is inevitable. Uh, and it doesn't matter whether India continues on its current path of political development or takes a slightly different path. As far as uh, the relationship with Russia is concerned, uh, I, as I said, do not see any scope for improvement in, uh, you know, in a positive sense, improvement in the relationship between uh, the West and Russia. I, I, uh, but I do believe that there are areas like we were just discussing Afghanistan and some others where the Russians and the Western nations could be partners and China can need not be excluded from that. China could also be part of that uh, uh, solution. I mean, for example, climate change, uh, you know, it's much like the problem in Afghanistan, which I keep telling my friends in India that, you know, if you accept that Taliban is the biggest problem, then you're also accepting that Taliban has to be part of the solution. You cannot solve the problem without them. So similarly, if China is the biggest emitter, you cannot really solve the problem of uh, climate change without China. So there has to be cooperation irrespective of the kind of top level relationship that you may have. It may be very competitive. So similarly, I think uh, that will take place with Russia. As far as Navalny and company are concerned, you know, it is difficult for me to say, but I will say this and I am responsible for my views. I'm not speaking for ORF, for India or anyone else. I do not like what is happening in Russia today, but I cannot really speak out with any semblance of a conscience when I tolerate much worse in my own country. There are scholars, independent academics sitting for months in jail with no charges or cases against them, merely because they oppose the government. How different is that from Navalny? So I'll leave my answer there. Thanks very much, Nandan. And, and, and there's obviously you know, so much complexity and sensitivity and uh, I think uh, you know, expectations on, on all sides of that issue that I, I think you know, that's a difficult but fair answer. Um, and it's one we're continuing to work through in, in Washington as well. Uh, I wanna take a question here from Isabel Martinez at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation. Uh, she asks, can you speak on how the role of China's 
Belt and Road Initiative could impact the relationship between Russia and China, as well as India and Russia, is Russia expected to benefit from this? Uh, and and uh, if I can flag a word you've used twice now, Nandan, the, the word inevitability. Uh, you used it about Russia's inevitable embrace of the Indo-Pacific concept. Uh, and, and, and again, I think uh, a moment ago, I just wonder, I mean, the word inevitable is often used around China. Um, I wonder if you could take that into account. Uh, you know, uh, the Belt and Road, it is interesting. I mean, I, I, I don't think uh, uh, the Russians are going to escape from the effects of the Belt and Road. But what I would like to point out is that the Russians have not entered into any agreement uh, on the Belt and Road with China. The Russians, uh, when were, they were being pressured, used a very interesting way of getting out of that uh, press by the Chinese, is they used the Eurasian Economic Union. And they spoke of the Eurasian Economic Union and announced that the Eurasian Economic Union will try, the Russian word is saprizhenia, but I mean try and connect the uh, Silk Road with the projects of the Eurasian Economic Union. Uh, in fact, that was done without consultation with the rest of the union. But it shows Russia's attitude. Russia is wary of uh, China's intentions. Russia is not willing to become uh, a junior partner, uh, but it understands that it does not have the economic wherewithal to be able to compete with uh, the Chinese and that the nations of Central Asia particularly but even others across the globe will find it difficult to resist the charms that the Belt and Road Initiative seems to be offering. So they'd rather be uh, distant but on board rather than uh, embraced. So as far as the Belt and Road is concerned, I can see India and now of course the US uh, becoming open opponents of it. But I think there are several other areas which the Russians are quietly probing to see if they are able to uh, work around alternatives. The Indians are also working at it. For example, the Indian foreign minister recently spoke about using the Chabhar port as part of the North-South corridor. Right now it is supposed to run from Bandar Abbas. But if you use that, then the North-South corridor, if you look at it actually strategically, becomes a significant alternative to the uh, east-west BRI, although it runs north-south, but it connects roughly the same areas and can be used by the same number of people. For example, ASEAN would find it a convenient way not to go via China, you know? So uh, these are all, but you see the difficult part is Iran. There is a relationship with the United States and how that relationship will evolve to a large extent determines uh, what happens. Nanda, I, I, I want to just note, uh, there was a question exactly on Chabar from uh, Navar Chalikian at the East-West Institute. I, I feel like you've answered that question. Uh, if we have time, we can return to it. I want to go to a question from Gunter Rosenitz, uh, the Austrian Peace Academy. Uh, he asks about the importance of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization on the one hand, uh, and on the other hand, whether India has specific expectations uh, from the European Union, again, me editorializing, 
presumably in the context of Russia and the kind of grand strategy issues we've been talking about. It's, it's very striking to me how little mention of Europe there has been in this conversation. So, uh, so please, Nandan, why don't you comment on that? And Michael, I don't mean to exclude you from the conversation either. We have quite a few more questions. I want to get in as many as I can. Well, as far as India's relationship with Europe is concerned, you know, there is a summit coming up in May, and I think there will be several significant uh, announcements made about, uh, in fact, one of them will relate to alternatives to the BRI. Uh, India and EU are discussing ways and projects they could do in Africa and uh, other parts of Asia, where uh, the, which could act as alternatives to the BRI. Uh, so that is a, uh, uh, there as far as Europe is concerned. The second reason why there is not much about Europe as an entity, I mean, as an EU, but India's relationship is with individual countries, more of a bilateral relationship, is because EU does not carry a security angle to it. See, we have a strong security relationship, be it with France, be it with Britain, even with Germany. But with EU, it's very difficult to have a security relationship. Uh, and so that is probably why it is not at the forefront of our minds at this point of time. As far as the SCO is concerned, look, India is realistic enough to understand that it will not uh, walk out or walk into an organization that is detrimental to its interests. So uh, it walked into SCO with a clear understanding that this is an uh, organization that will help it raise its profile in Central Asia, uh, that will help it uh, maintain close links with the Central Asian leaderships because India recognizes that it does not have the economic muscle to compete with the Chinese there. But this helps India understand the needs of the Central Asian countries and try and see what it can offer. One of the things, for example, that has emerged out of these closer contacts is that India has significantly enhanced its educational aid to uh, the Central Asian countries. We are offering scholarships to scholars to come and study in Indian universities, and they are being very eagerly taken up. The second thing that is coming up is cooperation in IT, you know, helping banking services and all these things. So there are elements that uh, are emerging in uh, India having greater links with uh, the Central Asian countries. It does create problems and does uh, raise questions of contradictions when people say, oh, how can you be in the Quad and the SCO at the same time, right? But let me be also very clear about this. I mean, while there may be a semblance of contradictions, neither of them is a military organization. There are elements of uh, security cooperation in both, but they are not our explicit military alliances. So, so far, India has been able to uh, thread the needle as it were. How long further it'll be able to do so is an open question, but I really don't envisage much of a problem in that area uh, unless a black swan event takes place. Um, here, here's what I'd like to do. We have less than five minutes remaining. Um, a number of questions we haven't gotten to. I wanna give Michael a final chance to comment. So what I'm gonna do is run through a few questions here. Uh, go to Michael 
first for a comment and then Nandan for a closing thought, if that works. And we could sort of keep it to about two minutes each. That'd be perfect. Uh, so uh, one more organization is invoked uh, in a question from Michelle Anderlini, uh, doctoral candidate at Malmo University, asks about the future of Russia-India relations within the BRICS context, which again, I think we've touched on very briefly, but uh, is an important uh, institution or perhaps not. Uh, there's a, a question which I'll uh, just paraphrase from Dr. Errol Henderson at Pennsylvania State University uh, about the significance of the, uh, the um, Indian diaspora in the United States and its uh, general alignment with, uh, with the Modi government uh, in shaping uh, uh, the relationship between the two countries. Uh, and then uh, finally, uh, I want to uh, bring in the, the question of Afghanistan once again. Um, again, we have this publication, this trilateral publication. You know, Michael in particular might invite you just to briefly advertise that with some thoughts about you know, where this is headed, heading, given that the official perspectives expressed from the three capitals are really quite different uh, and use different terms like power sharing and democracy and, and so forth. So those are the questions. Take whatever bite of them you'd like. Michael, I'll, I'll go to you first. Yeah, thanks, Matt, and I'll be, uh, I'll be brief. Um, the question about the significance of the Indian diaspora in the U.S. Uh, and its views of, of, of India and the government, you know, for quite some time, the conventional wisdom had been that uh, the large and growing Indian diaspora community um, was quite supportive of the BJP, including Modi, uh, which I think has been true. But we started to see some shifts over the last two years, and there's been some really good um, polling that's just been released, Milan Vaishnav at the Carnegie Endowment and a few colleagues have come out with some interesting studies showing that younger generations of Indian Americans, particularly those born here uh, in, in the US, um, have been more inclined to be critical of, of the Modi government. Um, and I think this could be related to the democratic backsliding that we're seeing in India that was referenced before by, by Nandan. Um, and you also see this with some of the Indian Americans that are now in politics, including some uh, members of Congress and progressive Democrats who are Indian American and have been quite critical of the Modi government. Um, so on the issue of Afghanistan, uh, you know, I would actually first come back to the, um, the comment about the SCO, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I think that that is one of these platforms that can be very, very useful space for cooperation between India and Russia. Afghanistan is one of the topic areas within the SCO, much like the Heart of Asia Istanbul Process uh, Initiative. You know, with the US on its way out, these are the types of multilateral settings where India and Russia can work with, with other countries to try to forge some type of common ground on what, if anything, can be done to help promote peace process stability in Afghanistan. In terms of, of, of the report that you mentioned, basically what we all agree um, is that um, at the end of the day, there's relatively little that Russia, India, and the United States can do to cooperate in Afghanistan, but there are some specific areas, counterterrorism, humanitarian assistance, uh, counter-narcotics, things like that, where if you can develop some type of track two arrangement or something similar between the three countries, there can be discussions uh, about what, if anything, the three countries can do to work together um, to, to promote better outputs in that regard with the recommendations ultimately sent on to the three governments with the hope that something can, can come of that. But bottom line is we keep our, we, it's important to keep expectations in check in that regard. Thanks. Thanks, Michael. Nandan, the final word to you. Okay, um, Afghanistan, I won't touch. I think Michael has covered it. BRICS, uh, look, the salience of BRICS may come down, but India is still 
not at the high table of setting the rules of the world. And therefore, all these bodies, whether it's BRICS, whether it's Quad, whether it's SCO, all these help India get closer and closer to that goal. So India is going to participate in them. Uh, use of India's diaspora. You know, I am a little bit more cynical about that. Let me be very clear about one thing. India is undergoing certain fundamental changes domestically. Some of these changes are absolutely essential. These are centuries old legacies which have to be dealt with. So in that process, uh, it is very difficult to go through it without pain. So that is one aspect about our domestic situation. As far as our foreign policy is concerned, you know, if there is a diaspora in Britain and I can use it to further my aims, I will use it, I should use it. If I don't use it, I'm really uh, not worth as a foreign policy maker. I'm not talking of an expert, but as a maker. The same is the Indian diaspora in the United States. I mean, I personally believe they are citizens of the United States, but if they seem to be influenced by me, I would be foolish not to use that influence. I will use it to my benefit. And it is up to the United States to try and determine and make sure that I don't. But the fact of the matter is I will pursue my interest. Thank you. Well, thank you both so much. On, on that last point, I'll just say, having, having grown up in California's Bay Area among many members of the Indian diaspora who were friends and just incredibly impressive people, I got the same impression I get every time I go to Russia or Eastern Europe, which is, you know, for every two people, there are three opinions. Um, so I'm not sure anyone can be put in a, a single basket. I want to thank you both for uh, incredibly insightful remarks. I want to apologize to those who asked questions that I didn't reach. Um, take a look at the Kennan Institute website for the joint paper, uh, and please continue to follow us. Thank you all so much. Bye-bye.